Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. And happy August, August 1st today. Although maybe not a so happy August because uh, many of you can start to smell the end of summer vacation when the calendar turns to August. Now, of course, some of you are already back to work. That's understandable. But for many others, the end is nigh. And listen, don't let anybody tell you any differently. You can simultaneously love your job and still mourn the end of your vacation time. So let's just get that right. Now, I'm currently in the midst of a two-week road trip. Last week, I spent two days in Houston, Texas, and then I was three days in Rochester, New York. Spent the weekend in Chicago. Today, I'm in Sierra Vista, Arizona, and I'll finish up the week in Ceres, California. Now, a couple of announcements, of course, as we begin today. Upcoming events, Grading from the Inside Out, the two-day training. That's going to be in Long Beach, California on September 21st and 22nd. That same training, two days on Grading from the Inside Out, Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. All of the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. I, have, of course, will have links in the show notes for you as well. Uh, the other conference, of course, I'm going to be at this fall is the Teach Better Conference. The podcast, of course, is part of the Teach Better Network. That's going to be in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. ton of great speakers lined up for that. I also have a link in the show notes for that conference as well. And if you use the code SHIMMER22, you'll receive a $25 discount on your registration. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And of course, a big thank you to those longtime listeners. I certainly appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Nathan Weir. Uh, Nathan, along with Matt Townsley, is the co-author of the book, Making Grades Matter, Standards-Based Grading and a Secondary PLC at Work. So clearly, we're going to talk about grading reform today. And in Assess That with Tom and Nat, Natalie Vardabasso returns, and we have the one-word versus two-word debate. Is it gradeless or grade-less? Spoiler alert, I get a little fired up during this conversation, and it's a little bit longer than the ones we've had in the past. So... That's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Nathan Weir is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a statement, and that statement is, we have to start listening to each other. Yes, even listening to those with whom we vehemently disagree, or we are doomed as a society. Now look, I know that sounds a little hyperbolic, and it can be a little over the top, but I want you to consider this. What possible positive outcome can come if groups of people who don't agree with each other stop listening to each other? Do you think we're going to draw closer together and more aligned as a society by not listening to each other? Not listening to the people who hold different views or values? Not a chance. That is a fantasy. Now let me tell you what sparked this for me. I know it's not a new concept. But the divides in our society seem to be widening year after year. I don't know if this is a generational thing. I don't know what's happening. But it just feels like the divides keep getting bigger. And what sparked this for me was, of all places, TikTok. A video came across my feed on TikTok. And for some reason, I had this disproportionate reaction to it. And it got me thinking about where we are headed. The video was of medical students at the University of Michigan walking out of their graduation ceremony when keynote speaker... Dr. Kristen Collier, was introduced and she began speaking. Now, what's the big deal about Dr. Collier? Well, Dr. Collier happens to be pro-life. Now, 
I know the recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court about reproductive rights is still raw for many people and that this particular issue for some might be the exception to the rule of what I'm about to hypothesize. But the video got me thinking on a much bigger level, on a much broader level. So understand, this open is not really about that decision. It's not about reproductive rights. It's about a bigger issue in our society. It's about how our societies stop what appears to be a widening chasm between two sides or other sides of almost every issue. Not just political, but just every issue. Now, in the video in particular, at the, with the medical students at the University of Michigan, one might say, well, why, why should the students on their special day be forced to listen to someone with whom they adamantly disagree? I can't argue that point. I can't argue it at all, and I'm not going to try to. In the micro, we all have a choice in most cases as to what we are willing to consume. Now, in the case of the students, one might also say, they're speaking truth to power because as students, and I don't know this for sure, but as students, I would assume the students didn't have a say in who was going to be their keynote speaker. So speaking truth to power for sure. But let's zoom out for a moment and ask ourselves, is this the answer? Walking out, shutting out, tuning out. Is this not a recipe for the eventual disaster that is all of us retreating to our own echo chambers? Now, when I was growing up, and even in high school and college, but especially now with the onset of social media, there has always been this caution of slipping into our echo chambers. You know, we don't follow those who oppose our views. We block the people with whom we have deep disagreements. And then we inadvertently or intentionally curate our content to the point where all we hear is constant reaffirmation of our views. Our views strengthen, maybe even harden, and then we're locked in. But I wonder sometimes, we can't even listen to, e to each other? We can't even hear an opposing view? We have to walk out? Huh. Or think about it this way. What is one of the most frustrating things about having what you feel is a legitimate point, but no one is willing to listen to you? What do people often say in that kind of situation? You feel like you have a legitimate point, but no one's listening. What do you say? You're not hearing me. I don't feel heard. Everyone needs to feel heard. Now, I know sometimes people say, you're not hearing me, and what they really mean is, you're not agreeing with me, or you're not doing what I said, or doing what I told, what I told you to do, or anything like that. That does happen, right? But most people need to feel heard. It's often why protests happen and other forms of expression, right? A person or group doesn't feel heard, so we take to the streets or we do what we have to do to get our message out there. But I think the core of the issue is this for me. If I refuse to listen to you, then I don't have to hear you. And if I don't have to hear you, then I don't have to empathize with you or your position. And if I don't have to empathize with you, I don't have to see you as human. And if I don't have to see you as human, I can demonize you. I can cast you as the villain. Now, the word empathy means the ability to sense other people's emotions coupled with the ability to imagine what someone else might be thinking or feeling. Now, nothing in that definition says to have empathy for someone is to agree with them. There's nothing in that definition that says you have to agree with them. It just means you have to be able to imagine what others are thinking. 
there is absolutely no way we are going to create a more empathic society if we refuse to listen to each other. Walking out, I'm sorry, that is not the long-term answer. I know it makes a statement, but I also know there's a little bit of performance art wrapped up in it, isn't there? Because of how dramatic it appears. We're walking out. And now in the age of TikTok and Twitter and Instagram, the videos get out there, the videos go viral. Look, I saw the video and I'm reacting to it. Look, I'm not doubting the authenticity of the people walking out. I'm not doubting the authenticity of how they feel. But we can't be naive to think the spectacle and the attention garnered from the walkout is not at least part of the plan. And again, look, maybe in that one incident, the University of Michigan, it was justified. Maybe it was justified. But again, zoom out and ask yourself where it ends. And more importantly, what positive can come from it? Reflect on your own experiences. Think about this from your own perspective. When people don't hear you, does that soften or harden your stance? When a leader, say your principal or your superintendent, when your leader can't or won't empathize with you or your perspective, does that draw you closer to them or further away? When people in general don't demonstrate the ability to sense your emotions, and they don't have the ability to imagine what you might be thinking or feeling, is there one ounce of positivity in all of that for you? It seems to me, maybe I'm wrong here, I don't know, but it seems to me right now our desire for empathy is at an all-time high, but our ability to give empathy, to be empathetic, is at an all-time low. We want it, but we refuse to give it. And again, I get it. The conversation specifically about reproductive rights is raw, it's intense, it's emotional, and for some, it's incredibly personal. And I understand that fully. It's a big one. But again, the big issues, don't you think it is precisely on the big issues where our ability to listen is most crucial? I mean, if we dance around it by only listening to one another on the periphery or inconsequential issues, there will always be that proverbial elephant in the room. It will feel phony. We say, oh, sure, we get along on the surface, but we all know what lurks beneath the surface. I sit in this peculiar place right now, personally for me, because I am simultaneously both optimistic and pessimistic about where we're going and where we are. It's sort of akin to the whole skill and will conversations we often have about implementation. On the skill side, I'm optimistic because I believe as human beings we have it in us. But I'm not talking about some naive, sunny view of the world where we all compromise on everything and no one passionately disagrees or anything like that. And we all stand around holding hands and singing Kumbaya. I'm not talking about that. There are ways to debate, ways to disagree, and show empathy and connect with human beings. You can be passionate. You can be empathetic. Human beings have different perspectives, and that's never going to change. But if we can remember that our opponents, in whatever issue we're talking about, if we can remember that our opponents are people, I know that sounds simple, but I really mean it. If you can remember that they are people, people who have families, people who have issues, we have to remember they are people. We can understand their perspective without agreeing with them. Now, on the will side, that's where I'm pessimistic. 
Because honestly, I don't see a lot of signs that most people are actually willing to do it. Right now, it seems to me it's getting worse. Compromise, which used to be a sign of strength, now seems to be branded as a sign of weakness, that you are compromising your principles. Even if you give an inch to the other side of the argument, you are you're compromising your principles. Now, as I said from the outset, it was a video about reproductive rights in the United States that initiated this reflection, but this really isn't about that topic alone. It just feels like today we can't talk to each other about anything anymore. We can't disagree in a way that has us understanding the other's position even when there isn't an ounce of it we agree with because no one wants to give in. No one wants the other side to have a win. Not even a little one. Don't compromise your principles. My real pessimism on this issue, honestly, is I just do not see a pathway out of it. I don't see any signs that this trend won't continue. Now, one would think that maybe a global pandemic would bring us together to fight that common cause, but even COVID, of course, became divisive. And if a pandemic can become divisive and political, then anything can. And as we've seen, everything is. I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. But I know something needs to change. Something needs to be done. Or we are going to further and further divide ourselves. We're going to retreat into our echo chambers. And we're going to continue to dehumanize those who disagree with us because we refuse to have an ounce of empathy for those with whom we adamantly disagree. Joining me today is Nathan Weir. Nathan is the Associate Superintendent and Chief Academic Officer at the Linmar Community School District in Marion, Iowa. He is a former high school principal of Solon High School in Solon, Iowa, where he and his staff championed grading reform efforts and implemented standards-based grading within the professional learning community. During his time in Solon, uh, his staff was recognized as a national model for professional learning communities and was named one of America's best high schools in 2014. Nathan is also the co-author, along with Matt Matt Townsley. Listeners, you'll remember Matt was on the podcast a while ago. He's the co-author of the book, Making Grades Matter, uh, Standards-Based Grading in a Secondary PLC. That book is published by Solution Tree, and that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. Nathan has been a Solution Tree author and an associate since March of 2020. So Nathan, uh, thanks for taking the time to be here. Welcome to the podcast. Tom, thank you. So excited. Um, love the podcast. Uh, big fan of your work and everybody you've had on here. So I'm really honored to, to be a guest today. Excellent. Love having you on. Great to have you here. Uh, you know, as we sort of turn the calendar uh, into August, many teachers and schools will be re-engaging with their thoughts around reforming their grading practices and trying to implement new ideas. So I think this will be a timely conversation for both teachers and for principals. But before we Absolutely. dive into the substance of that conversation, uh, maybe just for listeners maybe not familiar with you and not familiar with your work, highlight for us the journey so far. Where, where did you begin your career? Where did you start teaching? How did you end up where you are today as an associate superintendent, an author? and of course a leading advocate for grading reform tell us about the journey yeah no great that's a that's a good place to start and it's funny because I don't think anybody ever sets out at least I know I didn't to be an author or an expert on something so it's it's strange how that kind of turned out but 
Um, yeah, I'm originally from Iowa, grew up on a farm, uh, went to a private college in Iowa, got my education degree. Um, at that time, my wife and I moved to San Antonio, Texas. So shout out to any uh, teachers in the Northeast Independent School District down in San Antonio, where I started my teaching career. Um, I started as a fourth and fifth grade teacher, um, taught down there for a few years. At that time, I started working on uh, my master's degree um, for administration. And so that, that was really good because that really is what started my grading journey. And, you know, Tom, you've worked with schools around the country and you're probably aware of, you know, Texas had a law back in the day um, where you couldn't pass third grade if you weren't proficient in reading. And so we were super collaborative and did a lot of stuff in our elementary school about making sure that all kids reach proficiency. And so that really launched my career and my thinking about how, what, what can we do to make sure all kids reach that level of success? So um, I worked on my administrative degree down there at Texas State, uh, and then we moved back home to Iowa, uh, where I started my journey as an elementary principal. So I was elementary principal in a preschool through fifth grade building um, for six years. We did a lot of PLC stuff. Um, we didn't really call it PLCs at that time. I don't even know that we knew what that was, but we worked in collaborative teams. And, and our main goal that I had with my teachers then was to start refining our report cards and connecting them with standards. So that was a lot of the work that I did as elementary principal. Um, from there, I worked on my superintendent degree and didn't quite want to change to the superintendent role at that time. I was really enjoying being a building principal. So I switched jobs um, and took the job at Solon High School, like you mentioned, and was high school principal for seven years. And so um, that was a unique shift for me. I had not been in a high school since I was in high school. I never taught high school. Uh, in fact, I think my teachers, when they hired me, were like, who, who is this guy? And uh, how's he going to know anything about creating a master schedule? So um, at that time, I got hooked up with, with Matt Townsley. Matt was my curriculum director. And uh, I know Solon was really working on this idea of grading and tying grading. And so it was a nice tie in with my elementary experience because we had done a lot with aligning our standards. And so that became our work and some of the grading reform that we did while I was at Solon High School. So spent seven years at Solon High School as principal. And then in 2018, made the shift to central office. Um, so I am now in Marion, Iowa, which is uh, one of our urban centers. Um, in eastern Iowa, we have a district of about 8,000 kids, and I serve as the associate superintendent and chief academic officer, where now we're trying to do this same grading reform and standards work and PLC stuff across our district. Yeah. And and where did the idea for the book come along? Like, how, how did you and Matt connect? I know you work together, but where did yeah. the idea come from? Yeah, it was good. Matt and I worked uh, several years ago. We contracted with some schools in southern Minnesota, and so they were in like rural southwest Minnesota. We were down in eastern Iowa. There wasn't any good way to get there. So we had a lot of windshield time. It was about a five-hour car drive. Yeah. We, we were doing this work, and it was our first time doing this work together really outside of our district. And just in the car one day, Matt's like, hey, we should probably write some of this stuff down. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, we've got all these processes and protocols and really hurdles and obstacles that we overcame because we didn't know any better at the time. And so when we would make these trips to Southern Minnesota, we would start writing things down. We started creating some outlines and then Matt had the crazy idea because he loves to write. He's like, hey, let's do a book. Um, and so at that time, that's where Making Grades Matter, our book that got published. And I should note it got published right on March 13th of 2020, right when COVID hit. So that was interesting timing. Yeah. Uh, but we took the nuts and bolts of all the things we had done and really organized it into a structure. So that's what I mentioned at the beginning. Never thought about being an author. Thanks to Matt Townsley, he twisted my arm. 
Um, and we ended up putting a pretty good product together that, that yeah. we're real proud of. And, and because of the PLC connection in there, we, we were doing a lot of that in Solon. And so that's a really strength of, of our book. March 13th, 2020 is going to be a date that everyone will remember forever. Yes. Everyone remembers where they were. I mean, there are certain historical events, whether it's the Kennedy assassination or, you know, 9-11 or March 13th, 20. I mean, there there are certain exactly. moments in history that people will always remember where they are. I want to I go on a bit of a tangent here, Nathan, because you said something yeah. that I think is... Uh, an interesting theme to pick up on, or I just want you to highlight for us your experience because as never having taught high school, I, I think going into administration and uh, moving into a new role, whether it be assistant principal or principal, one of the most important things you have to do is establish some credibility and certainly reputation precedes you. And, and as you move schools, you change districts, you know, references, all of that. You had never taught high school. You had never, since you were a student in high school, you'd never taught high school. You'd never worked in a high school. Tell us a little bit about that first year. How did you, how did you go about earning the trust and the, and because you really are starting at a little bit more of a deficit because you don't even have a track record to lean on in terms of that credibility. What was that like for you? What, what, how yeah. did that first year unfold and how did you go about other than just, I know you're going to say relationships, but, but how did you build that credibility with staff so that when it came to the actual nuts and bolts and the operation of the school, that they started to see you as a, a credible voice and a credible leader? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. And, and you're right. I think that is unique. At least that's when I share and talk with groups. Not a lot of people have that, that similar path. So, you know, it really started for me um, when I was elementary principal, my wife is also a teacher. She taught Spanish and she was an elementary teacher and then she was certified K-12. So she was teaching Spanish at the middle school and high school. And we had this discussion one day about kids failing and how she wasn't comfortable you know, and I go back to my Texas example, hey, we needed all kids to be proficient by the end of third grade. We just weren't comfortable giving an F and failing a kid in that class. And so I, I really got to thinking at that time, how can I take that mindset from elementary that, that we lose as kids transition into secondary? Like what mm -hmm. if high school teachers felt the same way that, hey, no kid in my class is going to fail and we're going to do everything we can to help them meet these standards? Mm -hmm. Um Thankfully, when, when, I, when I started at Solon, Matt had laid the foundation for the PLC concepts. And I think what was critical in that first year as high school principal is that there were some staff members who were willing to think outside of the box. And so we had a lot of discussions around what's the purpose of grading? What, what do we do with zeros? What if kids aren't turning things in? How can we get them to do that work? Um, what was nice for me was that I had this background of how we helped elementary kids, whether it be small group, you know, it was kind of the foundation of RTI um, processes and said, hey, just because they're high school kids doesn't mean we can't pull kids out or do small group work or do some things to help these kids be successful. And so that was critical for me because I brought some credibility in standards, learning progressions, how we can help get to those, even though I wasn't a content expert at the high school. Mm -hmm. What I relied on my staff to do is to be the content experts. Like, I don't know high school advanced chemistry. So I trust you. We hired you. I want you to be the content expert, but I will help you understand how we can take your assessments, how we can tie them to standards, and then how we can better communicate that to kids so that they're they're seeing some success in learning. And so that was our big shift because, you know, in traditional high schools, grading is something that's done to kids, not with kids. 
So we started that process of we want students to be a partner in the assessment process. And I think that really helped. Now, the first year when I did the master schedule and didn't mess it up, that gave me an instant credibility because they're like, <laughs> OK, this guy's an elementary guy, but he at least didn't mess up the master schedule. Right. So I, right. I, I crossed that hurdle. So it was good. Yeah. OK, fantastic. Uh, a couple things. Uh, one, other than the teacher's no one understands advanced high school chemistry. Let's just get that straight. Okay. Um, and I right. think, you know, but I think that brings up a larger point uh, before we transition here is that I think too many, uh, I don't think most, but enough to notice too many leaders sort of falsely believe they have to be content experts to lead initiatives at the high school. No, you need to be learning experts. You need to be, you right. need to understand assessment. You need to understand systems. You need to understand how to create routine and how we access support and all of those things. Leave the content expertise to the content expert, experts and, 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 and think about how you link it together with, with learning and all that. Okay, so let's, let's jump into the conversation about grading because you have experience doing this. And I know certainly yeah. all of us who advocate for sound grading practices, standards-based grading, however you want to phrase it, uh, really recognize that at the secondary level, specifically at the high school level, but often at the middle school level as well. Um, it is so challenging. The question ultimately is, why is it so challenging? Despite years of professional practice and, and research that supports many of these practices, so many of us who advocate find that at the secondary level, people still seem to be hesitant and act as if this is a new conversation. It's a conversation that's been happening for 20 years or more, and yet there's still some hesitancy. So from your perspective, Nathan, why is there that hesitancy still at the secondary level? Where at the high school level specifically? Where is that coming from, from your perspective? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I think first of all, I, you know, I noticed the differences in my experience between elementary and, and secondary, and the just the idea of content experts. I think high school teachers traditionally think. I'm in charge of this content. I'm still the sage on the stage, if you will. I'm the one that's delivering the, the instruction to students. Um, and so that's, that's one thing first to overcome. But, but second, I would add, is just the isolated nature of secondary teaching. And what I mean by that is not having those strong PLC concepts built up within the system to be able to allow secondary teachers to collaborate. Uh, and it's, it's different than elementary. You know, elementary teachers are used to being in a group. They often teach all the content areas. So, you know, you may be an expert in math, but your next door neighbor may be the literacy expert and you share ideas that way, which naturally leads to more collaborative nature. They're all outside at recess. They all have common planning times, that type of thing. So what, what I see is that this, this isolation in our high schools, especially where it's just, I need to shut my door and do my teaching and it's still very teacher-centered rather than that focus on student-centered. And, and I think to some extent, when we work with schools, teachers honestly at the secondary level don't know how to do that. So when they, when they get together, they don't even know how to process looking at results of assessment and tying them to standards because they've been so isolated. This whole idea of having to do it with group accountability within a PLC is such a foreign concept to them. And I would add that it's very vulnerable. Like you have this piece of you out there that nobody sees. And if I go share my data and it's not as good as the next algebra class, well, now I'm, I'm looking bad in front of my peers. And that's, that makes teachers feel very vulnerable in that process. 
that vulnerability is real for sure. Uh, and, and, and the idea of, you know, it's, it is, uh, there, there's that expression. And I've said this before that teaching is the second most private act that adults engage in. Uh, it can be right. And, and yes. breaking down those barriers can be, can be challenging. It is vulnerable and creating that kind of safe environment for, for, uh, folks to be able to share their data and not be judged for it, but to be supported and, and how we sort of get out of that competitive mindset and think right. about how we bring people together. So that leads me obviously to the next question, which is uh, just sharing with listeners the connection that you and Matt make, because I think your, your, your answer just really sets up this idea of why the PLC at work framework and, and, and model is such an important one. So you make that connection in the book between standards-based grading and a secondary PLC at work. Um, I, I think it's your contention that schools implementing the PLC at work process and framework are at a distinct advantage when it comes to grading reform. So what specifically, I think you've touched on it, but let's dive a little bit deeper. What specifically do you see as the advantages for schools implementing that PLC at work model? Yes, absolutely. Matt and I have talked about that at, at length and, and was one of the reasons why we wanted to make that connection within our book. I've often told people that it, we, we just happened to do grading as our reform because that's where we were. If we would have done any other school initiative like a calendar change or a curriculum adoption, I'm convinced it would have been successful in our setting because we had a collaborative process set up. Mm -hmm. So Matt had worked really before I had gotten there to really start talking about the four questions of the PLC, um, get common planning time for our secondary teachers. And so there was a year or two of, of really strong and purposeful relationship building within our departments before we ever started talking about grading. And I think that's one of the mistakes that people run into is that grading can be very personal, like we said, very vulnerable. And if there's not a level of trust built up already, as soon as the school or the organization starts discussing that tough topic, those relationships aren't there and therefore they can't support that change initiative. Now, I would say it's not just isolated to grading. I would say it'd be any other school change initiative that schools are working on. So we advocate for a really strong base and foundation in that professional learning community concept, having teams look at the four questions, uh, really making sure that they have time dedicated in their professional learning time to get together. And one of the unique things that you'll see in our book was our we did a continuum for our grading practices where we kind of said, hey, if you're getting started with grading, it looks like this. If you're implementing it, it looks like this. And if it's sustaining, here's an example. Well, we also did that for PLCs. So we had a self audit that we would have our teams and our individuals do every year around those four questions because we wanted to really show to them, just like we do with teachers, with students, we wanted to show our adults, hey, here's what this looks like if you're going to be a sustaining level PLC. There are very specific things and very rigorous things your team needs to do. And so we were explicit with that. We taught those things. We worked on it during professional learning. Uh, and I know that that's what we can attribute our success to by being successful with our grading reform. Yeah, those those four guiding questions really do put the focus uh, on the learner and the learning 
Um, just for listeners, maybe not familiar, uh, question one, what do we want kids to know and be able to do? Question two, how will we know that they've learned it? Question three, what do we do for the students who aren't learning yet? And then question four, how do we extend the students who already have it? Uh, for me, I, I love that connection because it really does put the focus on learning. And I know that sounds, you know, when I, whenever I say that to audiences or, or groups, I say, hey, focus on the learning. It sounds like, oh, great, great idea, Tom. Never thought of that in my 20 years of teaching. But it's amazing how distracted we can become where it's those yeah. behavioral habits. It's those tangential influences on grading. So just reminding ourselves that our grades are only as accurate as the assessments they're based on. And so by articulating in question one, what is it? What are the standards? What is it that the kids need to do? The cognitive, cognitive rigor of the learning, all of that. And then designing the assessments in question two really starts a group off with uh, understanding clearly what the grade is supposed to communicate. So I love that, uh, that connection between those yeah. questions. And and Tom, if I can jump in on that, I think yeah, absolutely. for us, and one thing that we see is even with schools that maybe have a PLC foundation and they're starting this work, you know, when they get to question three, what are we going to do when students don't learn? That's where secondary schools really struggle because it, it's, there's still some mindset, well, that it's on the student to do that. Um, and so at least in our journey at Solon, when we answered questions one and two, we, we knew pretty well what we wanted to teach and we had pretty good assessments yeah. where we really were like, oh, we had the, oh my goodness moment. Like we need to do something with step three because we did not have a system for kids that, that didn't get it. And so uh, thankfully we built that. And I would say that was a very collaborative process with, uh, you know, Matt, central office, our leadership team at the high school we relied on teachers to tell us, hey, what does this need to look like so that we can really do question number three? How are we going to respond when kids aren't learning? Because it won't matter how good our standards-based grades and our assessments are if we don't have some type of response to kids when they don't learn. And so um, I know when I go around and work with schools, I really try to get to that question three, like, hey, one and two are important and they're vital. That's, that's the focus on learning. But you can't just assume that every kid, especially a ninth grade kid, is going to get their information the first time you teach it. So what's that process look like? Um, and so focusing on question three, I think, is a is a big uh, obstacle and challenge, too, as well for for secondary schools. I think that's that, that's a really good point. And it and it reminds me of, of conversations I've had in the past, which is the reminder about tier two interventions sort of you know, it's question three, what do we do for the students who haven't learned? There's tier two in the classroom too. And I think sometimes people misunderstand a continuum of support to think that the minute you teach it once and they don't understand it, we have to put this system into place where they're pulled out of class and they go Good into point. this, you know, intervention room where as a teacher, I can, you know, provide tier two supports in the classroom. Now, if it's chronic or pervasive and things like that, then, or if it's under a cycle, then we can, we can go through the systems as well. But I think sometimes we have to remind people that this is a fluid process, a continuum right. of support and not something that is clinical silos that we fit students into. Uh, but that connection is, is uh, certainly uh, strong. Um, so as we think about, you know, heading into the fall and school is going to begin, I want to preface my next question by by saying that look I understand not every teacher not every school is in the same place they're all in a somewhat unique position but uh, so I'm going to ask you to give me a generic kind of universal response when I know that's not usually applicable but I'm going to ask it anyway <laughs> so I want to shift a little bit to some advice Nathan I want I want you to, yeah. you know for listeners who are out there um, you know what what advice I'm going to start with advice for teachers and then I want then I want to move to principals uh, and talk about that. So you've got a teacher who says, okay, Nathan, I'm in, I get it. Standards-based grading. I want to move to this uh, in the fall. Um, where should I start? 
what's the best way? Let's assume the person is somewhat starting from scratch. Uh, where do they begin? What's, what's the, what's your advice to that teacher who wants to begin this journey? Yeah, I would, I would say to those teachers, like, number one, just do it, like start, because a lot of people want to, and then they never quite get into it. And I, mm-hmm. I and I would start first with making sure that you probably have, you probably need fewer assessments and your assessments could be condensed or more focused and every item, however you develop your assessment work on tying that to a standard would be what I would say is just start there. Now, mm-hmm. teachers are getting better at that as, as I would see that. So maybe if teachers have already done that, the, the next starting point for me would be talk to your students because bring your students into this process. I know when I saw in our school, the students in classrooms that were most successful, like you could have had a, one of my high school students on this podcast and they would have been able to tell you how they reassess, what their standards are, what their learning targets are, the process for grading, what they do when they don't understand. And that is because teachers spent time, not just teaching content, but saying, okay, we're going to have an assessment. Here's what I'm looking for. And not just ending the conversation there. As soon as that assessment was done or or administered to the student, then it was bringing it back and saying, okay, student, now, here's the next steps because we're not done learning with this. And so I think starting with those assessments aligned and then talking with kids and bringing kids into the assessment process is, is where I would recommend they start. Yeah. I I love that. There's three things I want to pick up on there just to summarize what you said, because I, I think they're very important points working backwards. Uh, Grading is needs to be something we do with students, not do to students. And I think the idea exactly. of bringing them inside that process, I love that point. Um, you mentioned early on in your response about fewer assessments. So I love the emphasis on quality, not quantity, right? Right. And <clears throat> the third one, which I loved, uh, is this idea of tying it to standards because you have so many teachers who want to do standards-based grading in absence of standards-based learning. And, and identifying the standards that we're teaching to and what is the cognitive rigor and all that. So I think that's great advice to, to focus on quality over quantity uh, in terms of your assessment, build high quality assessments that are tied to a standard to make sure that the standards-based teaching is reflective of your standards-based grades and bringing students inside that process. That, that is great advice, Nathan. Uh, okay, so let's talk administrators now. Principal says to you, Nathan, I'm in. I want to initiate this change in my school, but I'm a little hesitant. It's a high school. It's a fairly big staff, somewhat traditional. Um, Where should I begin with the faculty? How do I engage this conversation with my colleagues? Yeah, that's, that's that's a little bit tougher too, because I think then now you're talking this systems piece, but that's the part that I love. So, you know, I just started reading the powerful guiding building powerful guiding coalitions, the Bill Hall book that's new from Solution Tree. Um, and I, I would say that's would be my, that was my starting point. And I would recommend that to administrators is start with a small team of people who are committed to seeing this process come true or live out within the organization. I think one of the pitfalls that I see from administrators is that oftentimes they try to do it alone or they have this huge leadership team that's one person from every department and there's 17 people on the team and they can't agree on any common direction. So, you know, when I, Solution Tree calls it a guiding coalition, you can call it a a leadership team, but, but I would get the people that, you know, one, carry some clout with your staff and two, that have a powerful voice. And that doesn't mean that they're loud, 
but that people will respect them. And I would build that leadership team. And then I would dig into the literature that we have. I know Matt Townsley shared, you know, his link of, of several things. There's all the authors that, that you've had and have had on the show that, that would be resources. And I would just start with reading some of those things and developing some common um, ideas or beliefs that that leadership team could really do. And then next step is, all right, let's take this whole staff and see how we can make this work within our system. Because, and you mentioned this in your five myths too, like there's not one way to do this. Just because Matt and I did this in, in Solon and it worked the way it did, doesn't mean that it, it's, it's not a cookie cutter that we can replicate that easily in another district because every community, every district has different values. So I think that's why that guiding team is so important is to understand your values in your local sense within your local team so that you can start to build those more system-wide as, as you dig into this grading reform. I like that idea of the guiding coalition. Of course, John Cotter talks a lot about, uh, you know, starting a guiding coalition, create a sense of urgency, and then put that team together. And the idea of credibility, I think that that guiding coalition has to have, I, I often just say, they need to be people with street cred. You, that when right. they when Street they speak yes, yeah absolutely. when they speak about this topic that there are people on the staff who will just acquiesce to their judgment because they are uh, exceptional teachers they're great right. colleagues they're inspired you know we had a I remember one year in a high school I worked in a math, our math department chair stood up in front of the faculty and talked about how she was rethinking her homework practices and she was one of the best teachers on staff so we knew in that room that. When Lisa got up to talk about her homework yeah. practices, there's 15 other people in the room that are going to think about it just because she said so, because they're looking at the situation. She's one of the best teachers in the school and she's willing to question it. So the guiding coalition Absolutely. needs to be a nice mix of the faculty, but, but certainly having those people that have that influence and credibility. But Tom, you, you bring up another point that I think is really interesting is for administrators too, it, it doesn't have to be you up there leading. Like, right. in fact, some administrators probably have less credibility, just like I did as an elementary person in a high school, right? So yeah. find your people that are already tying it to standards, that are not counting homework in the final grade, that are using assessments that are really well with kids and have them be a part of that professional yeah. development delivery team, because you're exactly right. You put a peer up in front of their colleagues and you're going to have much more buy-in with that. It's true that one high school I worked in, our, our principal at the time, uh, Bill Bidlake, uh, he called it our year zero. And I loved that. And I said, what do you mean by that, Bill? He says, this is going to be our year of exploration. Next year is our year one, and we're going to have some expectations. So every month at our faculty meeting, we had some, some time carved out for assessment and grading conversations. And early on, it was, it was me mostly, because that was my role in the school as having done this yeah. at the middle school level. But slowly over the course of the year, we started to put faculty up in front of their their colleagues and and the power of that voice to voice was was uh, was incredible. That's when we saw the breakthrough. Not because yeah. I was saying it, but because Lisa and other faculty members got up and, and started talking about that. So I right. want to finish up with a bit of a different question here, Nathan. And I yeah. think all of us who advocate for standards based grading or sound grading practices, we all agree on the big rocks. You know, separate achievement and behavior and all of those different big principles, right? Yeah. But, but inside those parameters, there is room for disagreement. There's not necessarily universal agreement on every single aspect of standards-based grading. So I think we kind of agree on the parameters, but inside there, we get to make some choices. So I want to ask you this question. Is there an aspect of sound grading and reporting that you have a strong perspective on 
that may in fact leave you in the minority amongst us who advocate for this change? Is there a perspective or opinion or experience you have where you say this kind of cuts against what most advocates talk about, but I still think it can work or I still think this is something important? Yeah, definitely. I've, I've got a good example of that. And um, I, I think one thing I would use to kind of give this analogy is I, I remembered when when we were going through our grading process, I had this parent come up to me and she said, you mean to tell me you want every kid in high school to get an A? Like that's possible by meeting their standards and reassessments. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, if we do that, that's our job, right? So there's still this idea, I think within the standards-based grading community about the level four being exemplary. And, and I don't like that and I don't subscribe to that because I don't like the idea of still ranking kids. Like if we want, and by that, I mean ranking their um, assessments so that we still kind of have this bell curve effect. Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard at the secondary level to be exemplary and go above and beyond, so to speak, with very specific content standards. There are just some things that you can only do and you can only do them proficient. A squared plus B squared is C squared. You get it. There is no going above that unless you write a new mathematical theorem, I guess, but most high school kids aren't going to do that. So I know that goes against um, really the Marzano philosophy on extended. And Mm -hmm. um, we did not do that in our system. If you got a four, a four was an A, a four was proficient. Now, we didn't lower the bar for that. The four meant that you had reached a high level of rigor within that standard. But we did not do exemplary because I didn't want teachers to still look at work and be like, well, this kid turned all his assignments in on time and just did a lot of things. He's a good kid. I'm going to give him a four, but this kid didn't even do any homework. And so he's only going to get a three and be proficient. And I think we have to be careful of how that four point system still ranks and sorts kids. Right, right. And I think you bring up a really good point about making sure that you are clear in how you articulate what each level represents and communicates for sure. Uh, And having a deeper or more consistent understanding of the standards being having a more sophisticated understanding is different than going above and beyond something where it's a fairly binary skill and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, there's, I would argue, right? Like, don't we want all kids to have a sophisticated understanding of the standards? And if so, then that's me, make that your top level that we want all students to achieve at. And you definitely see some disagreement in the field about the idea because I, I, I advocate for the same thing. So on this, I think we agree that uh, you teach to the four you teach right. to excellence. And, and if the student, and what I, what I think is the important advocacy here is if the student falls short of the four, they know why. The four doesn't come out of nowhere. The four doesn't right. become this, I, I often describe it as Narnia. The four can't be Narnia, where it's yes, up to the student, it's up to the right. student to figure out where the wardrobe is and try to climb through it. Like we have to be transparent with them and, and make sure they understand and we teach to excellence. And it is an interesting thing that happens. And I would say it happens disproportionately at the high school level, where on the one right. hand we say, excellence for all. But on the other hand, we say there's a problem if there's too many A's. Right. And that tension needs to be reconciled, obviously, in one direction, not the other. This bell curve mindset. um, The best thing I ever heard about the bell curve was years ago, and I think it was Tom Guskey, years ago at a conference talking about how the bell curve really is about random distribution. And there is nothing random about what we do in in teaching. And that we should not expect a bell curve 
if, yes. if random is handing the kids the textbook saying in three weeks, there'll be a test on this chapter coming back in three weeks, giving them a test, then you can expect a bell curve, but there's nothing random about questions three and four interventions, extensions, all the things that we do with students. So I right think that's, uh, I'm with you on that, Nathan, for yeah. sure. Okay. Two, two questions as we finish up uh, yep. our time today, time flies when you're having fun and talking yeah. assessment, that's for sure. Uh, two questions as we finish up, these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Um, here's the first one, and you can take this in any direction uh, that you'd like. Uh, but educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Oh, that's a that's a great question. You know, for for me right now, I, I think just with our current climate, is this uh, just the the attacks really on on education right now that teachers and administrators and school districts and school boards are being vilified for the work that we do that we know we value each and every day with kids. And so, um, however, with that being said, I, I'm optimistic about education. Like these aren't things that we can or that we can't overcome. Like we can make sure that we rise above the challenges that we're having right now. Obviously, COVID has just, you know, flipped our system upside down and caused us to rethink the way we do things. So those are the kind of things that keep me up at night. And and it, it keeps me up in the sense that I feel bad that a lot of the general public really doesn't know what we do behind closed doors. No matter how many newsletters or open houses or things that we do, the life of a teacher and teaching and creating these assessments and using standards-based grading is incredibly difficult. And people outside of education just think it's easy. Well, you just give a quiz and you write eight out of 10 and you and I and everybody else both know that there's way more to that. So even though it keeps me up at night, I'm, I'm optimistic because I think there's, there's good work right now. Our, our teachers came through COVID scarred, but with a set of tools that they didn't have before. Uh, and I know that education is the one thing that's going to need to continue to help our nation move forward. So, yeah. I think, uh, speaking of March 13th, 2020, I think from March 13th, 2020, for about nine to 12 months, education had a bit of a reprieve from the kind of onslaught we get from the public, and then things seem to turn again. And, uh, and certainly the complexities of teaching are, are just way oversimplified in the public. I think you bring up a great point there. Right. Uh, last question as we finish up. Uh, it's a question about success, whether it's professional or personal success. Uh, your call, take this again in any direction you want to. But the question is simply, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Oh, yeah, I love that. I love that question. For, for me, really, success isn't an individual thing. I mean, yes, there's components of things that individuals can do to reach success. But, but I define that as when I can empower others to accomplish something that they didn't think they could do. And when I think back to my time in Solon, and I, I would hope some of my former teachers get to hear the podcast because you know, that, that to me was success. And, and it wasn't anything that anybody did alone in that system. It was all of us, a whole staff working together to do things that we didn't necessarily have answers for and that were not easy. And we sometimes face a little criticism along the way because we had some bumps in the road. So when I think of success, it's those times when I've been able to collaborate with others or a group, you know, as an associate with Solution Tree, when you get to go to a school and see that light bulb come on for a team of teachers, like that's, that's when, when we've reached success. So 
Um, I always think it's collaborative, never really has to do with me. And, and, and that's why I think that the power in the PLC is so important because we can accomplish way more together than any of us can accomplish alone. Yeah, I think that's a great point to finish up on. None of us has all the answers, but collectively we do. And, right. uh, and we can certainly come together and, and uh, that is the, the impact we have on others and the success that they had. Listeners, uh, you can and should follow Nathan uh, on Twitter. The handle is at Nathan underscore Weir. That's W-E-A-R. Uh, and also the book has its own, tw- the book has its own Twitter handle. That's right. That. Book's got its own Twitter handle. There you go. <laughs> the book has come alive at grades matter. SVG is the handle. Uh, Nathan also has a Facebook group called we are leadership consulting. Uh, you can check that out and I'll have links in the show notes, uh, for all of that. Uh, Nathan, awesome. uh, I know you're on vacation up at the cabin, uh, but really appreciate you taking the time, uh, to be here today. Thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Tom, thanks. It was great to visit with you. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, back once again with Assess That with Tom and Nat. Natalie, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Always always good to see you. Always good to uh, have these conversations. Now, you were kind of, in leading up to this conversation, you were kind of hinting that uh, you had a topic that you thought would be, uh, I don't know, a little provocative, a little uh, to, to get me going a little bit. So, you know what, I'm going to throw it to you and, and let you uh, uh, lead this segment or... Uh, let's, let's, <laughs> okay. I'll just turn it over to you. I at believe, this point. Let's go. Let's I believe go. the word that I used was it might trigger you. So oh, trigger, <laughs> <laughs> but I know you'd roll your eyes and probably be like, call me a millennial. But <laughs> so the topic that I want to dig into, um, is the idea of going gradeless or ah, ungrading going, as oh, the ungrading. Call it. I have ungrading. noticed Tom through talking to you a lot through following all of your content that you can get a little spicy. Yeah. Around this topic. That's fair. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to set it up too much, but I just want to ask, like, what's going on there? What's the tension for you that you sometimes are getting so frustrated about? (laughs) Well, the look, um, yeah. Do do I do I get a little uh, feisty about this topic or spicy, as you said? Uh, (laughs) Yes. But it, but really, Nat, it's in the minutia. So I want to be clear mm-hmm. about a couple of things. So the assertions about going gradeless or ungrading and all of that in the big picture, as you zoom out, for me, it's really positive. The fact that folks are are focused on feedback and and because we, we do know that it's important that feedback be used by students and sometimes grades can interfere with that. And so all of those big picture items around going gradeless and ungrading, I, I am 100% supportive of. So I don't, I don't want to be overly critical about those movements or, or what people are talking about. So I, I want to be clear about that because it's important where I think there are some points of tension where, where we might have some friction, if you will, is in the minutia, right? And the minutiae are these hyperbolic statements and 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 uh, approaches that I think are are not really fully honest about the situation. So, for example, you know, people say I've gone gradeless. I say, well, what do you do at the end of the semester? Well, we give grades. So you haven't gone gradeless because at the end of a semester or the end of a reporting period, you are going to have to produce some sort of summarization. Now, I think part of the challenge is language. And when people say going gradeless, if you look at grades from a very narrow perspective and you're thinking letter of the alphabet, sure, 
you, you can definitely remove that from individual students' assignments, provide them with defective feedback, and have them move forward. But if you look at a grade from an expansive perspective, which is I need to be able to, in some way, shape, or form, summarize the degree to which a student has met the learning goal, that could be a letter of the alphabet, that could be a number, that can be a descriptor, that could be all sorts of things. And the key there is that we have universal agreement on what that means. So that's, you know, without going on, there's, there's other points of tension that I would want to bring up, but that's an example of where... I appreciate and love the fact that people are focusing on feedback, but I think I would separate the two words rather than saying gradeless, mm -hmm. which is in, in 99% of school jurisdictions around North America, that's just simply false, but grading less separate the words grade less to me is a favorable practice. And what we know about formative assessment mm -hmm. is that grades and scores can interfere with a student's ability or willingness to keep learning. That's mm -hmm. what the research showed. The research has never shown a causal relationship between grades and learning. So these assertions, give a student a grade and the learning stops, is hyperbolic. It's a hyperbolic reflection of, of the research that's never been shown in the research to be a causation. And we know the expression, correlation is not causation. So it is true that grades and scores can potentially interfere with a student's ability or willingness to keep learning, but it's not causal. And we shouldn't talk about it as if it's causal because that is somewhat of a dishonest representation of what the research actually says. Okay, over to you, Nat. Nat uh, <laughs> rant <am> I? over. <laughs> okay. Was I triggered enough for you? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I feel like I could I'll trigger you even more. No, no, um, it's all good. We know that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I align in a lot of ways with the the dialogue and the space that's been opened because of this. And on the point of grade less, I think someone who did this really well is Sarah Zerwin in her book, Pointless. <laughs> but yeah. she intentionally separated those two words to really make the case that yes, we are still living in this system. But what can we do within that system? As someone who wrote grading from the inside out, you should mm -hmm. appreciate that very yeah. much. So of course, um, for me, so you're familiar with John Cotter's work, right? In the eight of step course. theory of yeah. change, what yeah. I, why I think I'm I can see past all of the, cause you, I'm big on language. We all know I'm a linguist and I will go down the etym etymology rabbit holes like crazy. But with this one, I've been very like, Hmm, there's something interesting happening here because when it comes to change, uh, John Cotter talks about how the foundation to really drive a great change effort that's sustainable is a sense of urgency. Yeah. And what I really like about what whether you call it going gradeless, whether you call it ungrading, basically it's a marketing spin on formative assessment, <laughs> but it's creating an urgency to say we do have this body of research that though it's not recommending causation, it is showing that there's something here that is creating a barrier to learning. And the research that I'm really interested in too is the, the work that shows that when we have those extrinsic, extrinsic motivation or rewards, um, we can get a lot of that, we can motivate that rote task like stuffing envelopes. But when we're looking for creative and critical and this more expansive divergent thinking, that's where we see less of a willingness to take risks or to engage in something that might lead to a mistake. And so for talking like on our last episode about competencies, what I'm so excited about here is at least there's that sense of urgency and people are asking, well, why? Like if you hear it and you've never heard of the research, you could care less about reading books on assessment or listening to Tom Schumer's podcast, but someone's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm trying going gradeless this term. Mm -hmm. What's your first question going to be if you know nothing about any of this? Why would you want to grade less? Right. 
And like, what an amazing place to start change. And then, you know, you need that coalition, you need the guiding coalition, and there's some really cool communities that have popped up around it. So for me, from a change perspective, I'm just so excited about, though it's not new, I completely agree with you. And I think sometimes like knowing you very well, where the frustration might come from is you've said all these things for a very, very long time. Yeah. And you've just Maybe said I just in, wasn't a, in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, I think you were, but I think it's just, we have to, I think it's important with change to think about these energizing cycles of renewal. And of sometimes we have to repackage and we have to restate and we have to try a different way of, it's all communication. I've said for years that change yeah. at its core is just communication and marketing. That's all it is. That's what are we true. trying to say and who are we trying to say it to? And how are we going to say it in a way that makes them want to listen? I think for me too, it's a lot of uh, disproportionately the research that gets cited uh, about going gradeless or or grading less, et cetera, is the research from the late 1980s from Ruth Butler. Now that research emerged in 1987, 1988. And so the assertions nowadays, it seems to be a manifestation of social media is that what we're basically saying is that this research emerged, a whole generation of educators ignored it, had no... Uh, act upon it. But suddenly in 2010 or 2014, we've discovered the Ruth Butler study. Those studies have been out there. And I and I think that what happens is that we, we I guess what I really bristle at is, is the way that complex topics get reduced into these pithy little slogans and tweets that are really designed to generate attention and retweets. Assessment mm -hmm. is complex. And I think that mm -hmm. when we reduce it to these oversimplified, sometimes hyperbolic statements, we lose the nuances that are necessary to understand. Feedback doesn't always work. And I never hear the going gradeless people talk about that. The research is not, it is, it's talked about as if uh, just get rid of the grade, give them feedback, and you're going to have a learning explosion. Well, I'm sorry, that does not happen in the research. In fact, there's a lot of research that indicates that feedback doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it's too task specific. And therefore the feedback is not transferable and therefore doesn't affect their long-term learning. So it isn't this idea that just take away the letter of the alphabet and we're suddenly into utopia or, uh, you know, Gen Xers will understand we're in Xanadu, right? Uh, we're in this world. It, it's not, at, it's just not that simple. And I guess what I bristle at is the oversimplification of things. Everything in assessment is context dependent and nuanced. And it really, for me, just, I guess, and, and this may be a Tom thing, like fair enough. Um, but, but it's for me, it's reducing things to these pithy little slogans that really don't encapsulate the truth about the, what the research says. Anyway. But that's where the dialogue comes in. Right. And as someone I've, and you've probably had this happen in your work too. I've been accused of being pithy and hyperbolic because I have a Twitter that I'm very active on. I only mm -hmm. have so many characters that I'm working with. You have mm -hmm. to be a little bit pithy. That's like the nature of the medium. So I think sometimes we have to be careful to remember that the medium, I know we talked about the medium being the message, but the takeaway could be, oh, people are trying to be pithy, but it's the medium that they're trying to communicate through. Because I know from talking to a lot of people that are doing this work, they recognize the the intense socialization of grades and the cultural pressure that comes from the family wanting the grade and that you don't remove it and the kids are liberated, that it's a long process of dialogue with students and trying to co-create and trying to look at what could empowerment look like in my setting. I I think I've always really tried to live by the, the phrase people positive and complexity conscious. Mm -hmm. And I think um, there's something a little... 
uh, I don't know if this is the right word to say, so I hope I don't offend anybody, but you know, they talk about like tribal politics. Mm. I'm noticing something very tribal happening with ungrading versus standards-based grading versus there's some camp stuff going on that's starting to make me a little concerned where we're all having the same conversation, but people are kind of jumping into a foxhole and they're quick to want to point out what the other group's doing wrong. When we're all having this, I've talked like, like, you know, from the project I'm doing, I talked to 50 people across the world over the past month about the concept of equitable assessment and grading. And Mm -hmm. everyone has a strong opinion about Mm -hmm. another group that's doing it wrong. And I'm, I'm, that part concerns me a little bit. And I think, I don't know if that's, that could be totally blamed on social media. I think perhaps, it can egg it on for sure. But I think it's something that's always kind of been there is there's an, yeah. an us versus them that can come up. And sometimes at the core of it is just people not asking enough questions and learning about what other people are doing and being open to hearing other perspectives. Because I think everyone has a yeah. lot to learn from one another. If for you sure. don't understand standards-based grading and you go full into ungrading, you're going to run into the problems that'll probably lead you back towards standards-based grading. Mm-hmm. You need really mm-hmm. clear standards that are in accessible language or if you just jump into standards-based grading but you haven't really thought about the complexities of how do we empower students to help us gather evidence then you're going to run into some problems where you've now made rubrics about rubrics about rubrics and it's turtles all the way down (laughs) so true yeah no that's fair and that's why i said it what i said at the beginning because i want to i want to we're 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 sort of bristling at minutiae here we're not bristling at the big ideas and the big rocks Mm -hmm. around feedback i'm i'm 100 on board with that Mm -hmm. um but I think what happens is sometimes for someone like me that maybe is trying to not be as extreme, but try to find some balance in the conversation is you end up sounding like you're defending the <laughs> traditional letter grade, right? Yeah. When somebody says, you know, like grades are, these are five letters of the alphabet. Now they have a lot of social construct around them, but I think sometimes it is convenient for us as educators to not take a disproportionate amount of responsibility for the way students respond to grades, because I've often said to teachers in workshops, I say, you know, if there is a pathway to getting a higher grade without doing more learning, that is entirely an adult construct. That was created by the educators because, oh, Tom, these kids don't worry worry about learning. They just worry about their grades. I'm like, who, who taught them that? Because mm-hmm. students don't invent the grading system. They simply operate within the system that's presented to them. So, so if the student has found a pathway to get a higher grade without doing more learning. If grade if grades become a commodity that students can acquire by harvesting points, then that was invented by the educator. That was created by the adults because students don't create that system. They just operate within it. So yeah. for me, the nuances matter when it comes to really understanding assessment. Assessment is complex. It's simple in the sense that we know what to do, but it's very complex because there are no automatics There's no automaticity in assessment. It isn't just give them feedback and up they go with their learning. It is, it is all of that. You have a visitor there, right? That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, For those listening, Nat's cat has just uh, jumped on the table next to her. So so try to break up, try to break up the tension in this She's like, I'm sensing some anxiety. Yeah. Well, we're we're getting close to our end time, but we're going to keep going. We're going to turn this into a 20 minute rather than a 15 minute, because I think this is a good topic for us to keep chewing on uh, and, and, talking about in in terms of of uh because i think it's an important one out there and that's what i mean when when somebody takes an argument to what i might say to be a little bit too far in one direction when you counter that you end up almost being branded as oh what are you defending grades like grades are what they are there there is a need to summarize and report learning um and one of the expressions i often use is we assess because we have to in that 
It's how we give feedback and we use formative assessment. So assess because you have to and grade when you need to. Grade when you need to summarize and make a more holistic decision. So I'm with everyone when they talk about, let's let's not talk about point accumulation, but the idea that I wouldn't make a holistic judgment and be able to report that. I'll, I'll give you one quick example of that. I often use mm-hmm. the example of a, of a stop sign. Uh, a singular symbol can actually give you quite a bit of information. I'm not suggesting that it's the most descriptive, but if you were driving in a country within which you didn't speak the language, I think I've used this analogy before on the podcast. If you're driving in a country where you didn't speak the language, I'm not sure why you would do that, but just play along. You come across a red octagon. Would you know what to do? And you would, because we have universal agreement on what that octagon means And there would be sentences, if not paragraphs of information that would come into your mind as a result of seeing that symbol. Not the most descriptive, not the most, I'm not arguing that. But what I am saying is that this idea that a singular symbol can't communicate more than a single piece of information, I just think is a false assertion. The problem is that in schools, we don't have universal agreement on what the grades are communicating. And that's why grades have become so meaningless over the last you know, number of decades, because they have lost their focus on what they are supposed to communicate. Do you think it's possible to achieve universal agreement on what grades mean? I do. I do. At least mm-hmm. within a school, I think you can come to terms if you, you know, the research again suggests that we have fewer, more discernible levels. And that, you know, again, I think some people forget that A, B, C, D, let's say A, B, C, D, F, that's five levels. I can define and, and I think the problem comes with the term grade is we're thinking of the percentage scale. Instead of thinking of, you know, the idea that an A is a student who shows a deep, sophisticated understanding of the learning. A B is somebody who shows a competent, solid, proficient understanding of the learning. A C is someone who is developing. They're partway there. They've got strengths. They need aspects that need strengthening. A, a D is someone who's a novice. They've minimally uh, presented you with acceptable evidence, but most aspects need addressing. And then there is the F, which is insufficient evidence. So this idea that we couldn't rebrand those symbols, they're just five symbols. And for me, it's the assessment practices that produce the symbols that is far more important than just the superficial changing of those symbols. Change, going mm-hmm. from A through F to one through four or zero through four or whatever, that's that's a superficial change that doesn't have a lot oh, yeah. of yield to it. So yeah. anyway. So the reason, as we both know, <laughs> the big reason these symbols exist, those to aid with for a lot of times, we know there is an element of verifying and communicating learning, but a big yeah. piece of the consistency needed with those symbols and the efficiency is university admissions. So let's say just hypothetically Mm -hmm. that universities radically changed. Would you still maintain the assertion that, you know, we need this universal understanding of these symbols. These symbols are really necessary. Or do you think that would fall away? Like, is that really being upheld by universities more so than anything else? think there would be some type of summarization. I, I don't think I don't mm-hmm. think we can avoid that. The, the idea that you're going to take a semester is <laughs> a little sound effect for us in the background there. <laughs> uh, the idea that you're going to take a semester or a year's worth of learning and and present that to the universities without summarizing it or synthesizing it, I just mm-hmm. don't think is plausible. Yeah. So whether it's a letter of the alphabet or whether it's multiple letters of the alphabet, whether it's, you know, I always say to people, if you want to understand what, what, real sort of reporting in a standards-based system would look like, flip over a hockey card or a baseball card. If you flip Mm -hmm. the baseball card over, what you're going to see are a number of categories. 
and they're going to be separated and you're going to have a clearer vision of where the learner is, but it's still a summarization in yeah. some way, shape or form. So this is where, again, my, some of my frustration comes down to, um, you know, pointing out some of these nuances that I think need to be addressed. You end up myself, I end up getting sort of labeled as, oh, I'm defending grades. And it's not, that's not really, you know, uh, that's not really what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced and thoughtful about this conversation is, is it is not a binary choice. It is not two camps. I think we can, we can have some nuances to, to the conversation. And, and I think that honestly, sometimes there isn't an openness on both, both sides of this, Mm -hmm. this argument, but Mm -hmm. the idea that somehow I'm not for feedback. I mean, if you, if you (laughs) haven't read any of my books or read any of my blog posts or listen to any podcasts, then go ahead and have that opinion uh, that somehow I'm like grade everything. That, That just is a false assertion. But I think, I think what I understand about assessment, having been immersed in it for you know, now, now more than 18 years uh, of my career, of my 31 years, I just find that I've learned so much about assessment that is incredibly complex and nuanced that I just, I guess I just bristle at the, 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 the oversimplicity mm. with which sometimes these ideas are presented. I think everyone would agree that oversimplicity is not <laughs> an intended outcome or goal or intention yeah. that, that they uphold. But I think hopefully we can also all listen to this and agree that there is a need for how we summarize learning and what that might yeah. look like. And if we could all come together with a how might yeah. we question, right? Design thinking, yeah. then yeah. perhaps we could actually take all these different perspectives that all have equal, there's some merit and value in all of them mm-hmm. and find a way to better summarize learning. I think that's the real challenge that we're facing. I, right now. I, I would agree with that. And honestly, something that I bristle at more is something you talked about earlier, which is the camps. You know, w- I think sometimes as educators, we get a little bored. So after five years, we're like, well, we don't do standards-based grading. We do competency-based grading. We do standards reference grading. We <laughs> totally. do, it's like, stop it. You teach to standards. This idea, what is standards-based grading? It's grading based on the standards. So why are we, I, I think, I think honestly, Nat, and I know this is going to sound cynical, So often it's about creating a niche. It's creating a brand. It's, you know, we don't do that. We've evolved. You might still do standards-based grading, but that's so 2006. It's, you know, I just, I find that very frustrating that we can't come to these agreements. And I think cynically, sometimes these labels are created. These camps are created to carve out a niche to, to whether it's to publish a blog or to get retweets Mm -hmm. and likes. And again, I, I, I'm not normally, I don't, I'm not normally that, I mean, you know me, I'm not normally that cynical, but I do see a hint of that, which is what is the, what you're talking about is exactly what we've been talking about. Why are you just simply giving it a different name? Why is that? Why are you changing the label? Because you're not saying anything different, but somehow you, we've come up with this clever label. I don't yeah. think everybody has that. Like, I'm not saying everybody is doing that. I think that's, I think that's that. going to forever be a problem in every yeah, field, just probably. like education. We all have our jargon that's constantly being updated and we yeah. all say something, but we're actually talking about the same thing. A strategy that I've learned that I've found to be incredibly helpful in this space, especially if you're going to be someone jumping into the fray of leading assessment or grading work in your district or in your school is this one simple question that I was taught by an HR specialist and it's changed my life what do you mean when you say blank? So I think we have a bit of a problem where there's such a need to listen to reply rather than to listen to understand. 
and people hear a word that doesn't align with their background knowledge and they're already triggered. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, we have all this misunderstanding in the camps and they they don't get me, but you get me. We Mm -hmm. say standards based. We say standards reference. Like who gives a shit at the end of the day, really? If if someone's saying something to me and I think I know what they're talking about before making an assumption, I always try to check myself. This Mm -hmm. is a strategy I'd recommend to everyone by saying, when you say standards based, what do you mean? And when they describe exactly what I think, then I can go, okay, so we're just, we're on a, we're using different words, but we're talking Mm -hmm. about the same thing. I think anything we can do to try to get to common ground, there is one quote I wanted to share. You might hate this quote, but (laughs) it's in the, it's something that's guided me so much in the past little while. It's in the forward to ungrading written by Alfie Kahn. And he has this beautiful analogy where he's talking about the journey that someone takes as they're deeply going into this assessment work and really thinking about empowerment. And he says, our classrooms are the low-hanging fruit, but that fruit isn't enough for a full meal. By all means, pick it, but then go get some ladders. And I think at the core of what everyone's trying to get at is trying to rally people for a bigger systemic change. We have so much in education that is so stuck and there's so much inertia. And I think that we are completely missing the point when we all get hung up on language or this or that, or do it this way or do it that way, that we're not collectively coming together to climb those ladders because there is so much power in the voice of teachers coming together that is where the most transgressive place is always going to be the classroom but if we get stuck in a siloed thinking we're just upholding that same industrial paradigm that we're trying to disrupt we haven't yeah. actually disrupted it because we haven't changed it in ourselves and i that's something i've been thinking a lot about lately. well i think that and i don't disagree with that at all i think uh, as i think we probably should wrap it up here and we can readdress <laughs> yeah. this if we want to but i think part of the challenge is that there is a caricature that still gets perpetuated. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, and this is just my own personal experience, I've been at this assessment work for 18 years. The idea that generally that things are the same as they were in the 1970s or 60s, I just don't see that. There has been a lot of progress mm-hmm. in the recognition of effective feedback, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the self-assessment pieces, the self-regulatory pieces. But there's this caricature that still gets perpetuated that I think doesn't fully honor the fact that so many teachers over the last decade or two mm-hmm. have really embraced the work of effective feedback. And so sometimes in, in small places, it gets presented as if this is some sort of new breakthrough idea. And it might be that for you or, or someone else or whomever. But this work has had a lot of momentum. You know, I remember learning about the importance of feedback back in 2004, 2005, and having my epiphanies about how important it was to 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 really focus in on describing next steps for students and self-assessment through Jan Shapui, Rick Stiggins at the Assessment Training Institute. You know, that's 18 years ago. So to assert now, I, I, I definitely know those traditional practices still exist but I also know a lot of progress is being made. And it's mm-hmm. really easy, speaking of low-hanging fruit, it's really easy to paint a caricature about all schools to try to create this dichotomy to kind of create a, a, a tension around an idea. So I guess I just, I feel like I I'm, I, I bristle at um, the simplicity. I bristle at um, uh, some of the, the pithy ways in which ideas get presented. But again, I want to finish up here by saying mm-hmm. this. It's the right work. And I don't want to be critical of people who are having their own personal epiphanies and discovering this. And if if ungrading or gradeless is how they've discovered that, then then that's great. Uh, we're, mm-hmm. What we're debating here and talking about, Nat, are the nuances and the the minutia. Uh, but the big ideas uh, I, I'm in favor of, and I certainly support people that have gone down that road. Any last words of wisdom <laughs> for for people who 
who uh, want to go down that grade less road without triggering Tom. <laughs> oh, good luck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. See how you painted me? See how just I've joking. Been painted into no, a I'm joking. You know I'm, I'm joking. You know, I you know that I am someone who is prone to a good trigger, just like absolutely. you. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all good. No <laughs> one's triggered here. This input. No, and that's the part no, I think no, sometimes. No. Yeah. I think sometimes in debate or, or discussion, those, I'm, and we are just kidding here, but, but the idea of saying that, oh, you're just triggered that, that really does reduce the ideas to, to, instead of having the conversation about those ideas, it's really important. So I think mm -hmm. we, we, we are just kidding around with, with all of that we for are. sure. So definitely thoughts, last final thoughts, Nat, and I'll leave it to oh, you. Oh man. Oh, I get to wrap it up. Oh gosh. Um, I think you said it very well. The idea that this work is complex. It's nuanced. It is something that the more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know. And it is a journey that you can take your entire career and whether you're in a context or individual journey where you're just discovering it now, there's no shame and there's no judgment and the right. door is always open and everyone who's doing this work recognizes how humbling it is and how tricky it is. And you'll find an incredible community no matter when you start. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, always great to see you, Nat. Uh, mm -hmm. Listeners, we did go long on this segment, but <laughs> I think it's a topic that is worth exploring at this length so yeah. um as you as you heard i kept the opener short as a result of uh of making sure that we had space and time for people to listen to this segment uh, great to see you nat uh, look forward to next time <laughs> yeah me too that's it for this week Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If you've got questions for Natalie and I on Assess That this summer, or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events this fall. The next episode will be Monday, August 15th, that'll be in two weeks, uh, where my guest will be Lainey Rowell. Lainey is the author of the book, Evolving with Gratitude, Small Practices and Learning Communities that Make a Big Difference with Kids, Peers, and the World. So our focus, of course, during that conversation will be on gratitude. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating or review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Happy summer, everyone.